This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. This week, a fascinating guest continuing our author series, Chuck Lichtman. Chuck grew up on the hard scrabble streets of Gary, Indiana, where he faced pronounced anti-Semitism as a child, and that really shaped his life path, as you'll hear about. He later became a fierce advocate for civil rights. He was actually the lawyer back in the hanging chads days of the 2000 Florida recount, for those old enough to remember that epoch in presidential election history. He eventually came to author a number of books, and he's got a new book coming out in just a couple months called The Sword of David, and he synthesizes there his passion for the land of Israel, his yearning for peace there, and his love of thrillers as well. So really excited for you to hear Chuck's story today. Meanwhile, a reminder is always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook, Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Subscribe wherever you're listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts. Please let your friends know about this podcast as well so that we can spread the word and have many more people enjoy this wonderful podcast. Comments, questions, Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. And now to our conversation with attorney, voting rights activist, passionate pro-Israel defender, and thriller author, Chuck Lichtman. You're here with Chuck Lichtman, Charles Lichtman, an author of a recent thriller being released by Simon & Schuster, a very interesting thinker as well, and someone deeply invested in Israel and Middle East politics. How are you, Chuck? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. I'm glad I have the opportunity to speak with you and to those out there in Radio Land. There we go, Radio Land. You might have to explain what radio is to some of our younger listeners, but... Uh, Audio land, maybe. <laughs> okay. There you go. So, Chuck, let's take it from the top. Uh, where are you from? I noticed a little bit of a Midwestern lilt in there, but uh, where, where are you from? You have good ears. Um, I actually grew up in uh, Gary, Indiana, which is right outside Chicago. So, uh, if you know anything about Gary, you'd say, do you really want to claim Gary? It's a really in industrial town, right? heavy steel town yes but i actually look at it as being uh probably the best thing that happened to me because it gave me a real view of what the world is like in terms of uh, society generally and even though i could be in chicago in 25 minutes downtown chicago in 25 minutes that's a totally different gig than being in gary yeah what brought your family there how long have they been there you know generationally actually my father moved to East Chicago, Indiana, when he was a young boy from Pittsburgh. Almost all of my family was from Pittsburgh. And those people that were from Pittsburgh, which included my grandparents, and all four of my grandparents, and my um, great aunts and uncles, they were survivors of the Holocaust. And that was only because they were the only ones of their family that had come to America pre-Hitler. So everybody was from Pittsburgh and my parents came to, my dad came to East Chicago as a kid. And my mom moved there after they met and got married in the fifties. 
And so was it a, uh, you know, did, did they have a lot of roots to kind of the Eastern European background? And was that a, was that a big sort of pall cast over your, your childhood? Well, I'd say that the pall that was cast over my childhood emanated largely from hearing about the Holocaust for as long as I can remember that in itself is a story. And then also from my experiences growing up in Gary, living in an integrated community and being the victim of extreme anti-Semitism. And between the Holocaust and my neighborhood and getting beat up over a hundred times, those experiences molded me as much as anything. My goodness, over a hundred times. Tell me about that. So I'll try to tell it as, as, as quick as I can, but um, so I, I grew up, I'll just give you the basics of it. I grew up with hearing from my mother particularly, never from my grandparents, who were the ones that lost everybody in the Holocaust. Like, you know, they came from families of eight brothers and sisters each with all the cousins and the aunts and the uncles. So it was a huge family. And in each instance, either only one of them survived, came early, or in my grandmother Hertz, her maiden name was Klein, and I consider myself a Klein. She had a brother and two two brothers and a sister that came over. And other than that, everybody died. So I heard from my mother as long as I can remember about the Holocaust and her words, which, you know, I understand why she said them, but when I was four years old or five years old, and I'd hear the only good German is a dead German that made an impression on me. And then I move, you know, I grow up in Gary and now you can't make this stuff up, but my house on the street, on the right side, the family was named Keatsman. Mr. Keatsman literally fought for the Germans in World War II. All right, so I've got, I'm the only Jewish family on the street and I've got somebody fighting for the Germans living right next door. And in fairness to Mr. Keatsman, he was a nice man and my dad got along with him. His son was an anti-Semite, which means that he heard it inside the house but at least Mr. Keatsman didn't say it. On the other side of the house, there were Lebanese Christians. They were vocally, vocally anti-Semitic with my parents from the day they moved in. I don't know exactly what they said because I was really young, but I know my dad was really angry. And my dad, it took a lot to get him angry. He was a really calm person. Um, he was a big guy and he was a really tough guy. So you didn't want to provoke him. They provoked him. So I had Arabs on one side and I had Nazis on the other. And then I had people at the end of the street, the Ullman family that uh, were rampant anti-Semites. And there were some others on the block and they were older and bigger than me. And every time I'd go down the, the street because it was a dead end, there was no other way to get onto my street the almonds would pick on me and they probably beat me up, I'll say 30 times. And I'm a lot smaller and I'm a lot younger. And then I probably weighed 125 or 130 pounds because I'm a kid. Um, and there was a kid in the high school whose name is Lesh. She was the 
quarterback of the football team that would always make comments to me. And he must've punched me out at least 40 times. That's no exaggeration. And then there were others in the neighborhood. And finally, my dad figured out what happened, what was happening. And the next thing I knew, there was a big heavy bag, you know, for boxing in our basement. And he told me some of his stories growing up in East Chicago that were anti-Semitic. And I, I was a self-taught karate kid, just like in the movie, pretty much. I went out and bought a book on self-defense and practiced hitting that bag over and over and over and did every drill you could imagine. And finally, around my junior year of high school, when I gave it back to somebody that had been giving it to me for a long time, a guy named Cooper, Oodles Cooper, everybody in the school heard about it. And with the exception of the Almonds and Lesh, people left me alone. But those events almost single-handedly changed and made me into who I am today. I mean, you don't, you don't get rid of those. Why did you, you know, it's hard to put, your, put yourself back in the mind of a, of a child, uh, but why didn't you, or maybe you did try speaking up, telling your parents, telling administrators, teachers. I mean, that's not just an occasional, you know, shove in the hallway. This sounds like, you know, routine and, and pervasive and persistent abuse. Obviously, it was a different world than we were in now with bullying and, and you know, and all that. But, but still. Well, I did. I did once. And it was the very first time I was called a dirty Jew. And I was in first or second grade. And it was by the son of somebody that was very prominent in the city. And I came home and I said to my dad, what is a dirty Jew? I, I was called a dirty Jew in school today. Why would someone say that? And my dad questioned me. He threw me in the car. We drove over to the, the man's house. He opened the door with his son right there. Uh, my dad confronted him. The man said, oh, that didn't happen. And my dad knew it happened. And he literally picked him up. I can, I'll can i never forget it. He picked him up by his shirt and slammed him against the inside wall in his house and said, if your kid ever says another word to me, then I'm coming back and you're not gonna like what happens. And we left. And what happened after that was everybody in the neighborhood heard what my dad did. And for a while, you know, there were some kids that didn't care and they remained my friends that were Gentile. And there were a lot that found out about it. And I quickly realized that telling my parents what I was going through was not gonna be helpful. My mom was a teacher at the school. And if the school came down on any of these rednecks, I, they were gonna take it out of me even more. So. I just learned to keep my mouth shut about it. So, I mean, you know, without the psychoanalyzing you, you too much, you know, how, how would you say all this impacted you and, and endured into your adulthood? It changed me in, in a very positive way because I didn't want to be Jewish. I hated being Jewish. Hebrew school was a horrible experience for me. My parents weren't religious, but they were ardent Zionists and very proud of being Jewish. So, we were secular in the sense that we observed the holidays, but we didn't pray regularly. And then I came to accept our religion and I started studying it. I didn't no, strike that. I didn't study the religion. I studied our history. And then really there was a seminal moment that changed me forever. 
and that is the Munich Olympics. We had exactly out of all four of my grandparents, one survivor out of what had to be probably 500, at really more than that if you count the cousins and stuff, you know, in full, only one survivor from the Holocaust. My uncle Oscar, who survived Auschwitz, and his story is literally almost exactly like Leon Uris's The Exodus. And so I grew up always hearing about Uncle Oscar and what an amazing man he was and what he endured and how he had a role in fighting in 1948 and Krav Maga, the whole thing. And we had heard that my Uncle Oscar was going to be in the Olympics as a boxing coach. And we were watching it on TV. And of course, we know what happened when Black September came and infiltrated and killed everyone. It, it wasn't like it is today where you can type out a text or an email to your family in Israel and say, is everything okay? And it wasn't easy to make calls to Israel. And for a number of days, we were just frantic and beside ourselves because we didn't have all the names of who the victims were. And we thought that Oscar died and I was just beside myself. How old were you at this time? That was 72, so I was 17. Finishing up high school. Yeah, and I was beside myself. I remember I was really emotional and angry, really angry. And then we learned, of course, fortunately, that he ended up not going and wasn't even there. But that sent me into a phase that I started in 1972 and continue to this day of reading and learning everything I can about terrorism, the history of our people, coming to a belief that if we don't protect our own and if we don't take care of ourselves, no one else is gonna. We may have some friends every so often that will render assistance because they may think it's the right thing to do. But by and large, we as Jews have our country of Israel that we have to protect at all costs. Although I have some thoughts that I'll share with you later, which dive into the book, but it made me an ardent Zionist and I wear that badge proudly. When was your first time going to Israel? My first time was in, I think it was 2001, my in-laws, I didn't grow up with money. So there was no hope of me going to Israel until my in-laws took the entire family. My wife has three sisters. So the brother-in-laws and all the grandkids all caravan for my in-laws 50th anniversary. And that was truly my life changing experience. In fact, you know, if I could just tell you one story, please, it has resonated with me and it even appears in my book. I was interested and I was captivated by the history because I'd done so much reading, but our tour guide, whose name was Ron Beer and with whom I remain friendly to this day, and he helped me a lot on the book. He made a lot of introductions in my research. I'll never forget, he pulls the bus over on the side of the road, or he tells the driver to actually, and he makes everybody get off the bus and there's this big open field. And he says, who knows what happened here? And um, nobody, of course, knows. And he says, this is where David slew Goliath. And I remember getting a chill right up my, up my spine. And he goes over 
And he's got my daughters and my nephew and my niece there, nephews and niece. And he picks up this rock and he's looking at it. He goes, this is the rock that David used to slay Goliath with. <laughs> now, of course it wasn't. But the kid's eyes are open like plums. And, and I remember tears came down my eyes. I'm, I get emotional about it right now even. And I put that, there's a set, I managed to squeeze that into the book. But that moment is what really, for some reason, because I didn't like Hebrew school and I didn't really like reading about the Bible, but that moment drove home who I was for me because David was the ultimate combatant. If it wasn't David slowing Goliath, where does our history go? Okay, so let's, let's go back to the, uh, you know, you're 17, you had this, you know, you're kind of, I guess, taught yourself some martial arts you're out of uh maybe out of the the direct eye of the storm with some of the anti-semitism where did you want to go as a young adult did you have you know strong career plans um you know were you very directed or driven in a particular way where did you go from there well there were two things that drove me and still drive me to this day the first was i became fascinated with journalism my mom had me reading from the time I was really young, like reading newspapers, you know, talking about what was going on in the news, you know, going back to when I was a really little boy, so little that when I was, when the Bay of Pigs happened and I was seven years old, I knew about the Bay of Pigs and went to Hebrew school. And on Sundays, we actually talked about civic issues as opposed to dealing with, you know, Hebrew school stuff. And my aunt was my teacher and I wanted to talk about the Bay of Pigs. <laughs> and now your pigs aren't kosher. You can't talk about that here. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, my own aunt threw me out of class. That's my dad's <laughs> sister, which became a story in of itself. But I was always tied to learning about what was going on in the world. And to me, journalism was the way of doing that. And between that and it also made me somewhat of a civic activist. And to this day, even though I practiced law for 40 years, I view myself as a journalist and I absolutely have always been a civic activist. So did you go to college ready to study journalism and kind of make your way in the newspaper business? Was that kind of your focus? That was, I went to Indiana university, which was in state with the right tuition. I, I had to pay a lot of my expenses and uh, studied journalism and political science and was somewhat active on the newspaper, not as active as I could have been, but because I had gone to Northwestern for a special journalism program. You I have an excellent journalism school there, yeah. Right, and I would have gone there if we had the money, but we didn't have the money. <laughs> that's where all the, that's where they're in Syracuse, where all the sports uh, journalists come out of. <laughs> exactly, you're right. And I was able to get a job offer from the Chicago Tribune, and as I understand it, I was the only kid that year that they had offered a job to. Certainly I know from Indiana and Indiana's journalism school was a top five program. And then when Peter Gorner, that was the name of the editor, told me what I was gonna get paid, I like looked at him and I said, oh, that's awesome. And I knew deep down, like, are you kidding me? I could work at Walgreens, which is where I worked during the summers because my dad worked at Walgreens as a stock boy and make more money than as a journalist. And at that moment, I said, this is not for me. And I turned down the job and went to law school instead. <laughs> Very Jewish of you. 
worked out quite well, but everybody that knows me has heard me say forever that I regret that. And that's also because, by the way, they said that they were going to put me, start me out doing features, including what you proverbially hear as being, you know, covering the PTA. And my goal was to get on the plane and go straight to Vietnam and report about what was happening there. And he said, yeah, maybe in 10 years. I'm like, I don't have 10 years. I'm not waiting 10 years. So. And we'll all be over by then. <laughs> yeah. So I went into law and I did that for 40 years while I continued to read vociferously and write and do you know things like that. It's fascinating. You mentioned uh, going to, to IU because just the other night, as part of my, uh, my work in Jewish education outreach, I happened to be at the home of uh, or hearing from Mr. Jay Schottenstein, who's an IU alum. Jay's my fraternity brother. And ZBT, right? CBT. So I don't know if you overlapped at all. He sounded like he was maybe a little bit older because. Yeah, he- no, no. We were there. I was there with him for three years. So funny. Incredible. I was at his wedding with Beanie. No, so I literally just met him the other night for the first time ever. And um, funny enough, I actually was going to try to get him on this <laughs> podcast as well. Maybe I'll, I'll drop your name. So anyway, he talked about anti-Semitism at IU and the Munich Olympics in 72. That was one of the stories that he, I, mean, I was there with a group of college students. And that was one of the stories that he, that he told the kids about was, was being there in 72. And I was wondering if there was that overlap there. Yeah, I, I literally was good friends with Jay. Good enough that, you know, he got married after graduation and I was invited to Columbus for the wedding. I think it was in Columbus. Yeah, Columbus, that's their big, uh, that's their big spot. Yeah, I know that's where he lived because I, I, Jeannie's from Cleveland, but I don't remember going to Cleveland. Jay's a great guy and Jay does some unbelievable things to help Israel. Have you stayed in touch at all over the years or? I've not really talked to him in a, in a while, actually. I would like to, you know, sometimes years in distance aren't helpful. But you know what? Those youth, those youthful bonds are always, uh, are always there, you know? I admire him a lot. Yeah, he's done great for Israel and also for the Jewish education, you know, sponsoring the, uh, the translation of the Talmud and really some incredible philanthropy. So wonderful, special people. But I just, I yeah. was just uh, struck by the confluence since, about two or three nights ago, I was, I was there. <laughs> Pretty amazing. Anyway, so went to law, which is, you know, it's funny. I, I joke around, you know, I was on campus and there was a couple of Jewish kids there and I overheard a kid talking to his friend. He said, yeah, I don't know what I'm going to do. So I think I'm just going to go to law school. <laughs> I said, you know, when, when Jews don't know what they're going to do, they go to law school. So it sounds like that was kind of your <laughs> path as well. You know, journalism didn't, uh, didn't pay the bills. So I'll go to law school. Yeah, and I was always geared to actually with my skill set to be a lawyer. Well, it's, and it so, sounds like you you know, kind of had the social activism bug, which obviously is, is very common among attorneys of, of a certain stripe. Was that part of your thinking to sort of be a champion for the underdog and to use your law degree as promoting civil rights and, and, and the like? Well, I, I had always been focused on civil rights. Muhammad Ali is one of my all-time idols because of what he went through. But actually, I became a, a civic activist in, in terms of voting rights. I was uh, on election night 2000, got a call and hired by the Gore campaign to help run the recount. The hanging chads. I was the Chad guy. You're the Chad so guy. I literally was the Chad guy. Like when you hear something about the Chads, and this guy that, that allegedly ate chads, that was me. And no, I didn't eat chads. But um, I saw firsthand 
you know, and we're, th today's not the day for me to go into the detail, but I saw firsthand how real votes were not counted. And that's a story in itself. And from that, I said, I, I can't just sit back any longer. And with the help of a lot of people in Washington, mostly John Kerry and Cam Kerry and um, Eric Holder and Bob Bauer and Ron Klain and some other people like that, I put together kind of like, they, they helped me a lot, but put together a national voting rights organization. It was called the National Democratic Lawyers Council. It had existed in a form many years earlier and disintegrated. And I spent a lot of time, a lot of money traveling around the country, going city to city, finding out who the leaders were and putting teams together. And then ultimately we got up to many thousands of lawyers and I merged that into the DNC. And then I served as lead counsel for the Florida Democratic Party from 2000 on until 2016, when I said enough is enough. So I didn't work that campaign. And then I found out in 2018, when they had the Florida recounts that they didn't have a program that I'd put together and had been in place for all those years. So I took my job back and ran it again through the Biden election. And that was it. But it was all voting rights because I saw firsthand how how minorities were discriminated against and how when legislatures have the ability to change laws to preclude voting, that they do so. You know, what's going on in the news now is not new. That happens every cycle. And I took that really personally because if there's one thing that should be clear in this country is that every person should have the right to vote and have their vote counted. So I've spent a lot of time doing that. And I've also spent a lot of time working in the Jewish community as well. Do you find that this kind of voter fraud happens or voter exclusion happens on both sides of the aisle? Well, first off, I reject any notion that there's voter fraud, whether it's Democratic or Republican. And that's because it's almost impossible for there to be voter fraud based on showing up at the poll and showing them your ID and checking off your name and giving you a ballot and Contrary to what was happening in the last election, you can't run your ballot through the optical scanner twice. The computers are so sophisticated. That just doesn't happen. What about mail-in voting and, and absentee voting, that kind of thing? It's a fiction. I think that, let's be clear, there are people that have bad intent. And I'm sure in every state there are a few people that try to game the system, but there is never anything remotely close to enough that gets even close to one-tenth of one percent of the votes, not even close. There may be in a state during an election, and this I'm pulling out an arbitrary figure, 50 people that do that in a state, maybe 100. And for all you know, half of them could be Democrats and half could be Republicans. Offsetting, yeah. Very, very few prosecutions for that. So... It's just meaningless words that we're hearing in the media. And it's a shame because what you want to do, especially in a democracy as beautiful as America's, is to enhance the right to vote and, and have people feel confident in our systems. Yeah, I was asking, even if it's not fraud, do you feel that there's disenfranchisement that's sort of proposed on both sides of the, of the aisle? Or is, or is that something you see only in one jurisdiction? I see disenfranchisement in the minority communities and have since I started doing this work. 
and I don't want to finger point, but it seems pretty obvious that if it's almost always happening in the poor communities and particularly the black communities, that's just not a coincidence. What are some ways that, that these communities are deterred from voting or prevented from voting? Oh, there's been roadblocks, like literally physical roadblocks, even in what was my home county of Broward County, where there would be sheriffs that would literally pull in front of the street and not let cars pass. Seen that. I've seen voter intimidation with large groups of large white guys with signs that look imposing, just physically imposing, which scares people off from voting. I've seen through the laws, the most restrictive ways to establish voter ID, such as that you must have picture ID and not everybody does, and particularly in the minority communities. There are a lot of ways that we have seen voters be suppressed from voting and it's just, it's just not right. And to me, part of this comes from my growing up with the anti-Semitism. It really does that I'm picked on and I lived in a black community and had, you know, people say, so my best friends were black. I had legitimate, real black friends. I would be at their houses and I would see they lived different. They didn't have the same opportunity. They weren't treated the same in school. I would say that most of the kids in my high school got along pretty well with the black kids, but it was different. And I saw firsthand and I saw from my dad's stores because he worked in minority neighborhoods. It's a different way. And I think that's one of the things that I take as a positive from the anti-Semitism that I experienced is that it opened my heart to understanding that everybody deserves a fair shake. Okay, I came out of my anti-Semitism just fine. And because we're white, I can walk down the street in most neighborhoods and nobody's going to be able to look at me and say, oh, there's the Jew. But if you're black, it's not like that. If you're Hispanic or Asian, it's not like that. So experiencing prejudice has helped me understand prejudice and become sensitive to it. What's interesting, though, is that, you know, you didn't adopt that sort of victim card although you experienced this extreme prejudice and physical abuse, which is, I would say, beyond what, what most people really experience, even if they do encounter bigotry or prejudice, the, the degree that you experience seems to be much more significant. Do you ever view other populations and say, look, I experienced this and I pushed through it. I didn't consider myself a victim. I didn't. And, and does that ever upset you when you see others grabbing onto the mantra of victimhood? You know, you raise a point that I've never actually talked about with the exception of one friend. I have four guys that I've known all my life, and we consider ourselves brothers. And one of them in particular, I was with him all the time. And I never, ever let Ron know what was happening with me. My friend Barry, who I knew from the day I was born, and Barry and Ron, me and two other guys, inseparable to this day. And I refused to wear that victim hat. And maybe it was because I didn't want sympathy. I didn't want them to act like they had to protect me. And there became a point where they didn't have to. But I understand human emotion. And I am sympathetic to those that have been victimized and why they share their being victims. I really do get that. It's painful. I mean, I don't want to suggest that 
because I kept it to myself, I didn't feel the pain. I could go back and look at certain periods of my life, like my eighth and ninth grades, where I know I was depressed. Back then, I didn't understand that I was depressed, but I can look back at my behavior and think of things that I did and how I sheltered myself and hid it. So I'm, I am really sympathetic to those people because that means they're feeling real pain. The question, I guess, becomes what do you do with that pain? And I think one of the concerning features of our current moment, to me at least, is the sense that people feel victimized and then they don't want to claim agency. In a certain way, I think it's almost infantilizing to people that, you know, it says, well, you know, these people have been victimized and therefore they can't transcend their circumstances. They can't excel. And I look at Jewish history and I say, well, you know, wait a minute. We were also deeply traumatized and Jews didn't complain about it. I mean, might have complained, but we also acted at the same time. And I just wonder if, if you ever turn to, you know, some of those individuals or their friends or just people that you associate with and say, hey, you know, you've been dealt a rough lot, but you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps and rather than lashing out at society at large. I've never really had that opportunity. Yeah. I mean, you know, I would submit because I believe heavily in my book and my book is going to give me a platform to speak, including hopefully at JCCs and in front of federations, that that would give me a platform when I get up there and talk about the book. That's something that could be integrated into my story because to me it's real, but I've not yet had that opportunity. So I guess over all these years, you're working as a lawyer and you're doing all this, you know, you're doing civil activism and, and doing, I'm sure, a lot of wonderful things. But it sounds like you really kept your passion for Israel throughout. And I wonder, what was your relationship with Israel? Did you visit frequently? Were you engaged in the various pro-Israel advocacy organizations or things of that nature over your career, over your adult life? And then at some point, how did you end up wanting to really write about Israel? So my first trip with my in-laws after that I'd have to go back and reconstruct for sure. But and I think that was 2000 or maybe it was 2001. It was possible it was 1999. My wife would know she's not around. But be that as it may, after that, I went back six times. I think I would have been back there this past year, but for COVID. And the moment COVID is lifted, if I can get back there, I will. I can't get enough of Israel. In my first novel, uh, was a Middle East terrorist thriller. And that had a somewhat heavy Israeli bent, but it was also more American domestic and dealt with this notorious terrorist, Carlos the Jackal, who, it's a crazy story, gave me his, agreed to give me his first ever interview. That in and of itself is wild. But all the time, my eye was really on Israel because I had a lot of Israeli characters in that book and almost all of them, with the exception of those that die off. I like to kill people off in the books, make it into the sort of David. And I kind of knew what I was going to write for the second book, being the sort of David, which is not quite a sequel to the last inauguration, but it has a lot of the same characters. And, and then that story moves forward. And I wanted that to be entirely focused on Israel and uh, a concept that becomes clear the more you read the book. And I'll only say that it has a heavy peace theme to it. And I anticipate that unless 
this book just fails miserably and I really don't think it will. It's already getting traction that I'll continue to write with these characters and tell the story of Israel. And actually my one dream, and I've said this for a long time, is that if I can actually get recognized and people say, this guy has it, my all-time favorite book, period, is Exodus. And I would love to approach the estate of Leon Uris and get their permission and write the sequel to Exodus, Bringing It Current. That would be my dream book. I've said that for 20 years now. Okay, you'll get there. I think you'll get there. How did you get into writing thrillers? Because it sounds like early on you were a journalism guy, you know, and then you, you went to law. Thrillers is a whole different, you know, not fiction is a whole different animal and then thrillers and that's a different kind of thing. So I know that we're on video, but I'm going to show you something and then you'll get it. You can see right here, <laughs> these are paperbacks from stack of paperbacks Ian Fleming like Bond novels, right? Yeah, James Bond, yeah. <laughs> All right, so my uncle Alfred, may he rest in peace, when I was a young boy, and I don't remember now if it was from Russia with Love or Dr. No, but I know I was already reading by then, takes me to see just me. I'd never gone out with him alone before then and never after that, but he takes me to go see one of those two movies and I am just blown away by the movie. And if my parents were here, they would say, this is true. I went back to my uncle's house and told him I loved the movie. It was unbelievable. And we talked and we talked and then he brought me all of these bags in a paperback book. He went upstairs, he came back five minutes later. I still have them to this day. That's how important they were to me. And I went through them. And I then told my parents that when I grew up, I wanted to write James Bond books, those kind of novels. And I've been hooked on spy thrillers ever since. And it migrated from Bond and Ian Fleming to Ludlum to Clancy to Silva. And now I focus only exclusively, practically, I'd say, on Middle East thrillers. And that's why I write them. You must love Fauda then. <laughs> I love Fauda. And I, and I had the opportunity to meet Avi, the producer, on yeah, our, car, yeah. one of our missions. I actually want to interview him also. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, he, awesome. Great show. I figured that just kind of put everything together that you're interested in. So. Oh, yeah. It's funny you talk about James Bond because they're in the news today. I think uh, Amazon just bought the MGM, uh, right? Yeah. James Bond just in the news today. I just, just read that headline. Yesterday or today? I wish I was 30 years younger because I'd auditioned for the role. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> nice. So tell me about The Sword of David, the current book. It's coming out soon. And in particular, you talk about this vision of reconciliation, of peace, and sort of your perspective on how peace could be actualized in this conventionally very difficult region. How did that play into the book and, and so forth? Well, I need to go back and give you some background on the book because I can't really talk about the ending because it would really ruin the story for the reader. I will tell you that the ending is unique. It has never, ever been written. I can promise you that. Second, I think people will find it uplifting. And third, people will 
absolutely based on what's happened in Israel the last couple of weeks, find it very timely. I, I wish that what happened did not occur and that this would play to my benefit in the book. I can't control that, but the book is unbelievably timely. I knew how I wanted to end the book. So I started with the premise, well, how the hell do I get there? And I had to kind of like outline backwards. And by doing that, I went all the way back to our history in 70 AD, where the prologue begins with the destruction of the second temple, explaining what happened to the Ark of the Covenant and Ten Commandments. That jumps to present day with the terrorist attack at the wall, where the hero Chaim Klein finds the Ark hidden under the Temple Mount that sends him on a search for the Ten Commandments. And from there, it has a heavy terrorist theme while at the same time, search for the Ten Commandments. And all this does tie together along with this mystical sword of David, which is why the title of the book has that in it. But that plays a very, very significant role. And I bring it all together, but I really think that if the people listening on this right now heard it before they read the book, because you don't see it till it's right in front of you, that that would be bad. And I have had a number of readers that have told me when they got to this one concluding section of the book, some of them said they started crying, but not because of sadness. So I think you get it. Would you consider yourself an optimist on Middle East peace? I consider myself a realist. I think the concept of peace right now is very, very difficult and complicated. And I think most people would say impossible. But having studied closely the Oslo Accords and becoming somewhat friendly with Joel Singer of late, who was the lead negotiator for Israel and, and re-watching over and over the Oslo Accords, what I keep coming back to is that if you look at the history of Yasser Arafat, I think that Israelis in the 60s and the 70s considered him the most dangerous man in the world. And he threatened to destroy Israel, and he tried. There was no more violent terrorist period than Yasser Arafat and what he controlled, you know, through the PLO. And then if you follow what happened with the Oslo Accords, there came a point where even Yasser Arafat realized the benefit to peace. And they got so close. And whether they would have finished off that last part of the Oslo Accords, nobody really knows because Rabin was killed. That ended it. There's no doubt about that. Netanyahu, who, who I have great admiration and respect for what he's done. I don't agree with what's going on so much, everything in his mind right now, and I'm concerned about his ethics a bit. But Oslo ended, and maybe it didn't have to end. And you have to wonder if Yasser Arafat, who cried when he heard Rabin died, I mean, that's phenomenal. He wanted to hug Rabin and Perez. And there was a negotiation before they actually walked out with Bill Clinton, please, no hugging. And then Arafat hugged him anyway. I don't know if you know that story, but if Arafat and the PLO, which is effectively now they call it the Palestinian Authority, but it's underlying that is the PLO, could get to this point 
where they wanted peace and both sides saw the benefit to it, I can't rule out that with a bunch of circumstances that I've been mowing through, in fact, that Israel could get there as well, even with what just happened. But it would take a tremendous amount of work and it would take a change of mindset of a lot of people in Israel to do it. But I do see optimistically a road if the Israelis first come to the perspective that we need to do just a few things differently. So presently, people would say, Chuck, that just sounds ridiculous. But I think if everybody took a step back, that maybe there could be a road to it. It's interesting. It sounds like you put the onus more on the Israeli side of the equation, where, you know, these, I think, certainly right-leaning Israelis would say they're ready for peace at any moment. But there has to be a recognition of you know, the right to exist and hugs from Arafat, notwithstanding that there's a, a deep seated desire from at least from Palestinian leadership, not to live side by side with, with the Jewish Israel, but to wipe them off the map from the Jordan to the Mediterranean or whatever. You know, there's not really that political will on that side of the aisle. I mean, I would think that if the Israelis as the, you know, the famous Golda Meir line of we, you know, if we put down our, our weapons, there'd be no more Israel, you know, well, I want to be really clear, and you're 100% right, Rabbi, and I gave a lot of thought to this, and I, I do blogging on my website of chucklickman.com, and I wrote one just this past week that deals with this issue. And first and foremost is that, you know, while Fatah is not a terrorist organization, it must renounce terrorism and acknowledge Israel's right to peace. You know, that's what the PLO agreed to in the Oslo Accords. Hamas is Hamas. I don't have any expectation Hamas is going to change. But if things happen the right way, maybe Fatah stays in position to run the Palestinian Authority and not Hamas. And second, I want to be crystal clear, I will never recede from the fact that Israel hasn't absolute right, as does every other country to protect its citizens and its borders and to keep its people safe. No ifs, ands, or buts. So I don't want anybody to think that because I'm trying to figure out what things could happen that would lead to peace that I'm soft on Israeli defense. So when I have come to believe and I think most Americans aren't cognizant of it, but I think an awful lot of American Jews are, which is that right now Israel's public image is not good. And I think a lot of that stems from the media, American media, including publications that I read religiously, like the New York Times and the Washington Post. I think they bend over backwards to blast Israel. And I don't think that the average American understands that Israel has gone to great lengths to have programs that help Palestinians. And I've spent personally a lot of time in East Jerusalem, uh, in the Muslim quarter, and in the West Bank, talking to people. When I wrote this book, interviewing, you know, day-to-day -day Palestinians. And I came away with the belief that most Palestinians absolutely 
would love to have a peaceful coexistence with Israel, and they recognize that there's a lot of complicated issues there. But I think that Israel has to recognize that the court of public opinion worldwide is very powerful. And Israel, while still retaining the mandatory right to defend its borders, has to do something to soften up the world in terms of how they perceive we abuse Palestinians. And I think that if there were the right public relations, that that could go a long way. And to me, there's some simple things. Like one of the things that I wrote was that, you know, optically, what happened in Sheikh Jarrah, the neighborhood with the eviction of the six families, just from an optics standpoint, forget about the legalities. It just looks horrible. You know, I understand the argument and I understand the emotion of why many Israelis would say they have to go. And while I don't think that single-handedly started what happened in the past three weeks with Hamas, who I think was just looking for an opportunity. And with Abbas, uh, you know, trying to delay elections and... (laughs) And Abbas delaying elections, right, and I looked into that in depth also, that, you know what, who cares if six families keeping their homes that they've had there for 70 years is going to bring down the temperature, let it be. Pick your battles. Not everything has to be a war. You know, it's funny because I wrote this in my blog. I had more people either write back to me or call me and say, you are so right about that. Now I know, okay, these are American Jews and they're not living there. And maybe some of them are my friends and they want to support what I say. But I do think that the optics are bad and I think that's an easy fix. And I think that if they had the right press secretary to get up and say, we want to work through some of these issues, that's a really easy one to take care of. Something else that really concerns me is the COVID issue. How hard would it be at this point with the United States having a huge number of citizens that refuse to take the vaccine and with there being an overstock of the vaccine available to get them onto the military aircraft and get Palestinians inoculized? And Israel can, I know that Israel's not going to go into Gaza and start giving people shots. That isn't good. But Israel could do its part in saying, we support this. And then people around the world, whether they're in Germany or France or wherever, might look up and say, well, that's a nice step. This issue with water. I mean, can you imagine in America if we had states or locales where there just was no clean water. The aquifer in Gaza is going dry. Most people don't realize that, that there will not be a fresh water supply in Gaza very soon. And I think something like making sure people have water is kind of fundamental to the consistency of who we are as Jewish people, of trying to do the right thing and having sympathy for the plight of others. And since we've suffered so much over the millennia, we ought to be 
a little thoughtful about how we treat the people that we share borders with. Well, well here's the devil, devil's advocate, Chuck, is that, you know, Israel does an incredible amount of humanitarian things all over the world. And how much press does that get? You know, when you look at the double standards, it gets no press. You know, you look at the double standards with, I just saw one of these memes today about, you know, 40,000 uh, Palestinians killed in uh, Syria, you know, X number killed here, X number killed there, a million, you know, Uyghurs killed in China and 80 Gazans killed. And what's featured, what's highlighted. So there's a feeling like, you know what, no matter what we do, and you've experienced anti-Semitism, not rational, you know, we can't do anything. You are right. But how do you fix that? You don't hear Israel stand up and say, wait a second here, hold on, and use public relations. I mean, some of this is just fighting back. In the last 12 years, it's been like the Muhammad Ali rope-a-dope, just taking it and taking it and taking it, right? And I think that if you take a look at some of the great things that have happened where we have absolutely tried to help the Palestinian people, but publicize them. Let the world know. That's why we have press secretaries in the United States that stand up every day and give a report. Here's what's happening. Here's what we're doing. And frankly, and this I'm really serious about, we need to call out the American press. I'm angry at the New York Times and the Washington Post and on and on with the publications, CNN, you know, that don't tell the whole story. And to me, as a journalist, I'm offended by that notion. And we need to do a better job of calling out the press in America, worldwide, where I think it's a little less likely because there's other institutionalized prejudices there. And in Israel, they need to start letting people know more. I understand that we can't control what press in France is going to report. We can't. But we can control, if it's focused and done the right way, messaging that the U.S. community says, you guys are not telling the truth. You're not telling the whole story. You're only telling the story that we're victimizing the Palestinians when that's not altogether true. They're not telling the story of the Palestinians that say, we would love the opportunity to live in peace with Israel. They know the Palestinians that live in Israel, particularly, I think, in the Muslim quarter and in East Jerusalem, and then I've been in a bunch of those towns, they would much rather have peace and have us rule them than to hypothetically have Hamas be their leaders that puts their lives at risk. They don't want that. You know, just starting to wrap up, you've been a, obviously a lifelong political activist and, and specifically within the confines of the Democratic Party and, and even formally representing the party um, and building some of its you know, institutions. You know, I've interviewed on this program quite a few, um, say really bulwark pro-Israel centrist Democrats, people like David Lukens and Stuart Eisenstadt, and others, Joe Lieberman, who obviously is no longer Democrat, but made his career there in the party. Are you concerned, as someone who I think shares a lot of those sensibilities and, and that really pro-Israel stance, are you concerned about the current tilt of, of the party and the, the direction it's going and how vocal 
its progressive or left wing has been, especially recently, in its anti-Israel sentiment? The left wing of the Democratic Party does not speak for me. I'm distressed about it. What I wish could happen, because I know that APAC has done this in the past, is that APAC take certain members of the House of Representatives that are left-wing and outspoken and don't know the facts and take them to Israel. And I know for a fact that they have done that with members of Congress in the past and taken them everywhere and not just giving them the one-sided tour. So they really can see what's happened. And to me, that's a failing of public relations. It's a public relations issue. So I have to tell you, if the whole Democratic Party all of a sudden became anti-Israel, I would feel like a person without a party because I don't believe in the restrictive views of what the Republican Party looks like right now in terms of civil rights. And I will never, ever turn my back on Israel. And both of those are so deeply ingrained in, in me. I don't know what I would do. I guess I'd run for president as an independent. You might go like Joe Lieberman, exactly, being independent and, uh, you know, hybrid. Incidentally, Joe Lieberman gave me a very nice quote for the book. That's actually, I did, I actually saw that. I forgot what he compared it to. He had a nice metaphor. I forgot what it was. Well, he, he as others have, have said it's the Jewish Da Vinci Code. That's what it was. Yes, Jewish Da Vinci Code. I knew there was something that was gripping about his description that, that I had forgotten. Speaking of the book, as we close up over here, Chuck, when is it coming out? Um, you got Simon & Schuster on board, which is pretty impressive. When is it coming out? And also, where can people find your previous book if they want to do some summer reading? And, and where can they follow your journey as well in general? Well, The Sword of David will be released publicly on September 7th. And pre-sales are available right now on Amazon. And I understand that it's doing pretty well. So I would tell people, start ordering from Amazon this moment. The Sword of David has been out of print largely because that publisher went bankrupt. However, I obtained the rights to my own book, got them back basically out of bankruptcy. And I will be putting it up on my website for sale, but not until after the Sword of David comes out, uh, because I don't want to detract from that book. Well, I have my uh, advanced copy uh, right next to me. I'm very excited to dive into it. And uh, yeah, I love Fauda too. So if you love Fauda and uh, <laughs> have put that in there, then there we go. Okay. Well, I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to be with you. And uh, I thank you very much for it. Thank you so much, Chuck Lichtman, author, activist. Thank you so much for joining us. Okay. Thank you. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.